Welcome back to the Fenway Rundown Mass Lives Red Sox podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cotillo, fresh off the COVID-19 injured list, had a mild bout. That's why we didn't put an episode up last week when the Red Sox were making so many moves at the trade deadline, four to be exact. By now, you know them. Christian Vasquez is an Astro. Jake Diekman is a member of the White Sox, and the Red Sox acquired Eric Hosmer, Tommy Pham, and Reese McGuire in three separate trades. Reshuffling the deck for sure. Heim Bloom referred to the team as more functional. Alex Cora referred to the roster as more complete. From here, it seems like just kind of a lot of moves that didn't accomplish much. And to talk about all that, we're going to talk to one of the best on the beat. You know him from Nesson. You know him from the Boston Globe. It's Alex Spear, who is coverage of the trade deadline, as it always has been excellent. So without further ado, let's welcome Alex to the show. Pleased to welcome Alex Spear from the Boston Globe, who anybody who follows the Red Sox obviously follows Alex on, on Twitter. I think the first thing I want to ask you is, does the retirement of Dennis Eckersley mean that you are no longer Stat Masterson after the year? Do you think that'll live on? I, I, would, I would certainly hope that any, anything that, uh, that Eck has done uh, lives on in perpetuity. And, uh, and so um, I, will, I, will consider, I will continue to wear my custom-made Stat Masterson cap, um, because being getting a nickname from Eck is one of the great highlights of my career, I think. And it's, it's in the Twitter bio, so once it's there, it's, it's there permanently, right? Yeah, nothing ever changes in one's biography. Right, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I obviously, uh, very busy week in the last week for the Red Sox, the trade deadline a week ago today, or yesterday, as we record this on Wednesday. A uh, lot going on, and, and I think you've, you know, had some some really interesting coverage, as always, about just some of the kind of inner workings behind the scenes, what went on. And, and earlier this week, a, a piece, um, you know, about how they approached the trade deadline and some, some notes there about how, you know, there was, if not a rift in the organization about, you know, how things went down, at least as you put it, confusion. So I'll kind of read the, the, the kicker line here, multiple members of the organization from players and uniform personnel, to front office members used a common word in assessing the team's unwillingness to define itself as either a buyer or seller while orbiting the 500 mark at the August 2nd trade deadline, confusion. And I think that is obviously, as people that cover the team, there is some confusion from all of us too on, okay, they go out and they you know trade Vasquez, but they get fam, they get Hosmer. Um, is this team trying to buy or sell? And my point, which we'll get to is, is it worth reshuffling the deck and getting better maybe in the margins to really you know irritate the large faction of your clubhouse? As you reported this story, um, you know, confusion was obviously the thing that you took away was frustration too. Um, was, was disappointment. I mean, what are some of the, the emotions that, you know, really uh, kind of were pervasive? I'm not sure that I would, uh, that I would characterize it as such. So let's, let's back up like mm-hmm. at, at its heart, you know, you're in a, you're in a tough spot, 500 team. Uh, you're probably in a confusing spot, right? right. Like, you know, how far in, uh, do you push? How much do you commit to the idea of uh, taking advantage of what could be a 20 to 30 percent chance of, you know, probably more closer to the 20 percent end of things? Um, h- how much does that matter to you as an organization relative to other like well-stated long-term goals? Um, and I think that, you know, and I, th- I think that um, it's it, it, it's a sliding it, it ended up being a sliding scale approach on the part of the organization. Um, which uh, which was very clear to some people, um, and you know, and there were, but there were other voices within the organization um, at uh, at a number of levels that just came out of it feeling like you know, feeling a little bit uncertain about uh, about exactly 
what the team had tried to accomplish and what the team did accomplish. Um, and, you know, that's not the first time that that's happened in, yep. uh, in Red Sox front office history. It's not the first time that's happened in Major League Baseball history. I actually think that uh, if you step back and look at baseball as a whole this year, uh, you will hear uh, you'll hear voices from throughout the game uh, that are uh, that, that express similar sentiments mm -hmm. based on this dynamic where increasingly um, teams are less comfortable just purely committing to buy versus sell, right? Like you had a couple of moves like that. You certainly had the Yankees making like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to use three prospects to acquire a rental player in Andrew Benintendi, but you had other teams like the Brewers, like the Giants, like, uh, you know, teams that we think of as very smart and uh, teams that do a good job of contending on a year after year basis that didn't, that, that tried to straddle this line. So I think it's kind of natural coming out of that um, that a lot of people will look around and uh, and say, did we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish and did we accomplish what we should have been trying to accomplish? Um, so I think that that's that's kind of where uh, that's that's kind of where. And so I would say that in some quarters, I think that it was crystal clear for the Red Sox what they did. I think mm -hmm. that in other quarters, uh, there was something between confusion and surprise um, and, but, but in different directions, because some people wanted the team to be, uh, to be more aggressive in terms of, uh, and, and less willing to explore a trade of a guy like a Vasquez. Uh, some people felt that the team should have been more aggressive in trying to move some of the rental players or getting below, uh, getting below the luxury tax line for, uh, the purposes of future, um, for the purposes of, of investing more in the future. So, um, that's, that's what happens when you're 500 and that's right. what happens when you're in last place. I mean, to me, you know, obviously um, it, it's just, when we think about the clubhouse, we think about, you know, the guys in uniform players are going to always, I think it's, you know, if you're a player, you have that short shelf life for a career, you're out there every day grinding and battling. You're not really wanting to take that long-term view, you know, and we've seen that, you know, players basically, you know, ask, before the deadline, there are the quotes, you know, we want them to believe in us. And we saw in Houston, Xander Bogart's pretty upset about Vasquez being traded, questioning the direction of the organization. You know, he admitted that, you know, I asked a question, are you, you think this is them waving the white flag? And he said, I wouldn't go that far. And he was careful to not say anything that would get him in trouble, but he said, it's definitely trending in the direction of, you know, waving the white flag, which, you know, is pretty interesting. And as you know, he's extremely candid and always says what's on his mind, but this time was kind of like, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, the emotions are raw, you know, I want to kind of be careful here. Do you think, you know, from an objective view, do you feel like it's worth that reshuffling the deck and okay, you're better at first base, obviously, and maybe your outfield's a little bit better, though that's debatable, uh, and get way worse at catcher. And, you know, as Heim put it, the roster is more functional and Alex put it more complete. Is it worth maybe that reshuffle if the, those who are going to battle feel like they've been given up on? I mean, is that is that trade-off worth it in your mind? Because to me, I think that's the big story of this whole deadline. I think that you have to be okay. Like you have to be confident in your ability uh, to, you have to be comfortable rocking a boat and yeah. then you have to be comfortable in, in confident in your ability to settle it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are not always, a, a good front office is not always going to make moves that are, uh, that reflect what the players want. Um, there is going to be, uh, there, there are going to be instances of player confusion. The important thing is that coming out of that, are you able then 
to offer clarity to the players. Like particularly, we're now in a, at a point where it's not the Dave Dombrowski model of this is a hole. We fill hole with the same, like we fill round mm -hmm. hole with round peg uh, or the closest thing to a round peg that we have. In the case of the Red Sox, it's now like, it's now, okay, we can subtract add subtract subtract add 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 right like it is a it's it's a it's a way different equation and a little bit more complicated and so you have to be in a, in a position where you're willing to have conversations uh with players in order to assure them okay here's you there has to be a transparency right like you have to be willing to have a conversation this is this is on the whole what we were trying to do um and be good at explaining that to them in a way that they will uh, that they will believe. I think that there were a lot of growing pains that existed, I feel like, uh, in a place like Los Angeles when Andrew Friedman got there, because that represented a change in how the team operated. And there was um, there was skepticism at times about the kinds of moves um, that were being made seemingly on the margins. And are they doing like, you know, questions about, you know, who are you, who, who exactly are you taking away? Um, and over time, if you Number one, get it right enough, right? Like that's big. You have to yeah. you, the 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 uh, the um, the veracity of those moves has to come has to become clear. But also, if you are good at explaining, making yourself available to and explaining to players what you've what you've been trying to accomplish, um, then yeah, then it's okay. Like if you think that it's in the long term interests of the uh, of the organization, and that you like, then you you just need to make sure that you can get to a point where you're able to get the clubhouse after a period of some turbulence, which the trade deadline is turbulent for everyone. Yeah. Just got to be able to settle it. And so I think that that was important that, uh, that Heim Bloom knowingly, you know, knowing what was coming up, jumps in, you know, had that plane ticket to Houston uh, scheduled well in advance of when he right. went down there and then stayed with the team through Kansas city. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll figure out how the team feels about it in the days and weeks to come. Yeah. And you know, he obviously, it you know, there was, I think, you know, maybe a little bit of an inflated storyline of he, he was at home and he wasn't with the team during the trade deadline. I think one good point people did make was that there was no front office member there, which I think, you know, puts a lot of onus on Alex Cora, the coaching staff to deliver bad news and all that type of stuff. But uh, maybe that's a discussion for, you know, a different day on the inner workings of who's I, there at, at whatever time. I, I would say that that is certainly not unprecedented for a, mm -hmm. in not just like preceding bloom. Yeah. Uh, there have certainly been other deadlines in which the, the chief Red Sox decision maker has not been with the team uh, at the time of deal-making. Yeah. And he said it was to just to make it easier to be kind of in the same room or the same place with all of his, colleagues in Boston so you know I, I do get that as well you wrote about you know they were, they explored a lot of other things as well obviously they I'm sure they talked at length about dealing Evaldi and Martinez and if there was any interest in some of those other rentals whether it be Hill or Waka even you know guys like Kike and Jackie Bradley Jr. and some of these guys that you wouldn't think there'd be much interest in um, and then on the buy side you wrote they you know had some interest in Sean Murphy so Obviously, you know, kind others, of a, you know, like they like yeah. you check in on, you know, they checked in on Soto, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, and and figured out pretty quickly, like right. that ain't happening. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's they they like you you become you they're because of how they're operating, right? That like that equation where you're talking about plus plus minus minus, right? Like how you approach, you know, how you approach overall roster building. Uh, they explored. They they wanted to find out everyone who was available and uh, see if there were different combinations and permutations that could uh, that could ultimately make sense. 
And Heim told us on on the, after the deadline that he, you know, went into that Tuesday thinking he would do more, and it sounded like he wanted to do more based on the conversation he had with us the night before, where he said, you know, the picture's not complete, and then the picture is only complete with the Hosmer move. Um, I wonder is is that wanting to do more? Is that wanting to do more selling, wanting to do more buying, or just kind of complete, com- keep doing that, you know, two-pronged approach. Or Right, maybe both, right? right. Um, and I, I think that they were, you know, they were very much engaged with a lot of teams continuing to talk about uh, about all of those rental guys um, kind of up to the deadline, but they weren't going to change their bar, right? Like they, they always valued the idea of we have this opportunity to compete. So, uh, so if we're going to trade away any of these guys, then it's not merely like it's not merely value for value proposition. Uh, it's also uh, it's also player plus postseason odds um, for you know that the, any return had to reflect that, which is why others in the industry were like, yeah, they were aiming really, really high, uh, and it's not that shocking that they didn't they didn't get things done with uh, with some of those rentals as a result of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fair to, you know, it's that one's, that one's in the eye of the beholder, right? Like yeah. they're, it's the Boston Red Sox. Like we should applaud teams for taking, for not taking for granted the opportunity to compete. The Braves won the world series. They were also in a better, like probably in a better spot than the Red Sox were. Um, not by know, a ton though. Deadline. What's that? But not by a ton, right? Not by a ton. Their record was similarly poor uh, at the trade deadline last year and they were a below 500 team but um, but they said you know this is kind of an anthopolis thing like when you're hovering around that mark you still push and that's something that he did in 2015 with the blue jays as well Mm -hmm. when he made the moves for david price troy chulewitzki at a time when everyone was like yeah really and then they caught fire um so don't take for granted that opportunity but in the in the case of the red sox it wasn't binary it was like we don't take for granted that opportunity, uh, but at the same time, like if someone is going to give us enough, for, like if if you know, we're, but we're open. We we also mindful of what this opportunity is. Um, so they were interested in, you know, they they were interested in buying prospects for buying prospects and rental players uh, from other teams. They were interested in um, in kind of exploring things up to the end, um, but. It was. Uh, I would. I would also characterize it as not having been as um, as frenzied a trade market as it had been the previous year. So I think yeah. that that also kind of threw off some of that like expectation of like there's going to be more deals to happen versus like the industry was like you had the Soto deal happening on the last day, but aside from that, aside from that like signature massive move, um, it wasn't nearly as dramatic a deadline as it had been the previous year which affected what the Red Sox were able to do. I think one thing that, that hasn't been talked about uh, a ton, they, they do, you know, say, all right, you know, for rental guys, we're going to set the bar high. So if you don't give us a, a good package for Evaldi or JD or whoever it is, we're not going to trade them because we get, we're comfortable keeping them. That package for Vasquez to me, I mean, you look at kind of some of the, you know, the scouting reports that have come out on, on Valdez and Abreu and it's like, you know, Kylie McDaniel calling them, you know, fringe pieces or something like that. And obviously they're not guys that are ranked, you know, in your top 10. I know you went and talked to Valdez and Wister and he's homered a couple of times. Um, and to me, it, it almost says something that for the Astros, I mean, Vasquez is effectively the backup catcher, if not, you know, on the, the lower end of a timeshare. So if a team's, you know, 
thinking they're getting a backup catcher, right? They're not probably going to be trading away a couple of guys that they're super high on. And that might be oversimplifying it. What about those guys hit that bar for the Red Sox? Because on paper, it looks like to me, it might not have. Yeah, well, I think that first of all, I think so. I think that their evaluations of uh, of those players may have exceeded that of kind of industry publications, right? Like yeah, certainly, as it, as like MLB does. pipeline, MLB pipeline isn't a great uh, isn't a great baseline for examining trade value of guys because they don't up, they don't update right, right. right with the same frequency as some of the other places. Um, and I know, I, so I know the, both of them have been very hot this year, right? Yeah. And right. Both of them have been different players this year, right? Like Valdez's ability to drive Like there was, uh, you know, in, in talking to some scouts and evaluators, they're like, those guys have taken, particularly Valdez, have you know, has taken a meaningful step forward in terms of his offensive approach uh, that makes him, you know, quite interesting, right? He's already hit a couple of opposite field home runs since joining the Red mm-hmm. Sox system, which is a kind of interest. That's, that's an interesting trait. Um, the Red Sox were comfortable with the idea that they thought that those guys might be, you know, might be higher, uh, might be better than what the indi- where the industry had them. Um, I think that they view them both as having a good major league floor, right? Like they're going to, both of them look like they have a good chance to contribute in the big leagues in some capacity. Uh, and then in the case of, you know, with the Brayu, I think that it's a more solid floor because he's a good defensive player um, who also shows some, you know, some interesting offensive traits. Uh, with Valdez, uh, the floor is a little bit is a little is is a is not as firm because there's some defensive there's some defensive questions. Right. Uh, but the upside, based on you know what's just been a monster season for him in Double A AA and Triple A, uh, has a chance to be somewhat greater if you can round out. So in the in the Red Sox eyes, they got two long term controllable big leaguers uh, who could be you know, who factor in is at least, you know, like nice role players uh, from the left-hand side um, and potentially guys who have a chance to be, you know, who have a chance to be everyday players, which, you know, in their eyes, that that was enough to move the needle when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about taking away, like tipping over a pretty big apple cart when you're talking about disrupting the pitcher-catcher relationship of a team. And when they re-sign Christian Vasquez in the winter, which I think is absolutely possible, <laughs> those three three guys can all be teammates, and the trade will look even better. There's always that one, but uh, you know, I, I also think that let's let's be honest, the Red Sox could have been more aggressive in talking to Vasquez. Uh, he he made very clear his uh, his openness to talking with the team uh, in advance of his free agency, and you know, in that opportunity, just that it doesn't seem like they ever made any real headway there. It seemed to me with him that he was kind of a polarizing guy among decision makers in the organization. From what I was, you know, reporting last year around the the deadline to pick up the the club option, it seemed from people telling me like, you know, this did come down to the last minute. There was a lot of debate here. It wasn't a no brainer to pick up that option. And then, you know, no extension talks. It seems like while there are people in the organization that, you know, really like him, there are people that think that there are deficiencies there well as well. And uh you know, obviously not in the clubhouse, but it just seemed like, you know, they weren't ever really willing to make that commitment, as you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, like they informed Vasquez very close to the deadline that they were going to make the move, which is like, you know, come on, like, you know, it, it shouldn't have been. Uh, it, it it seemed strange that it was uh, that it was that close to the wire for a guy who would have at least had industry trade value. Right. Like it's seven million bucks or right. uh, where, where he where his contract is for this year. Um, it's going to be an interesting one. We, you know, 
it's it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what Chaim Bloom values as a catcher. Um, if you look at you know there are teams like we we saw what the Yankees did this year, right? Like they ditched Gary Sanchez and uh, and got uh, and got Trevino, and uh, boy has that been an uh, has that been a spectacular makeover for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, and you see a pretty good number of teams uh, that are willing to go really, really ha- that are willing to take uh, terrible offensive production from that position more than any other on the field. If a guy has great receiving skills and is and has a reputation as calling a great game, um, Vasquez is, you know, for what it's worth, I, you know, I think that evaluating catchers for us uh, in the media using publicly available data and metrics is uh is a pretty fraught proposition but we try right that's our yeah. that's our job so his framing numbers certainly had been in a steady state of decline uh over the last couple of years um to the point of being like eh, like maybe average i think that uh reese mcguire is uh, a little bit ahead of him in terms of framing skills that's not all that a catcher does a catcher mm-hmm. like foremost it's you know can a catcher do a great job of calling a game and then you also factor in other things like you know blocking pitches and you know and uh, you know, anyway, uh, figuring out catching is really tough. Um, I think we're going to know a lot more about what it is that, uh, that High and Bloom values in his catchers uh, after this offseason. Yeah, and the, the greatest proof of all that is Martin Maldonado is still the primary catcher in Houston on a really good team, and Christian Vasquez is, you know, playing every two or three days, every you know, three days or whatever. Although we'll, so we'll see that that could change as well right. as uh, as Vasquez gets greater familiarity with that pitching staff. Like it's such a delicate position; like right. you have to proceed really, really carefully in terms of how you integrate uh, in in terms of um, in terms of letting it letting playing time evolve like you rarely see a team say okay we like you've been our everyday catcher you're now going to be our like once a week backup like Mm -hmm. you you know it it it, the shifts tend to work slowly there right i do want to ask a couple more things first one is on the cbt threshold because this is something that you know did our lives in 2019 and 2020 were dominated by this number to an extent and uh now it's, it's coming back into the discussion in a different way now um, you know, people were really, really pissed that the Red Sox were trying to get under it. And now they're pissed that they're over it. So, you know, they can, people can never be happy with, uh, that number it seems, but I do understand, you know, the, the reasons here. I mean, it seems like if you're going to have a team that has a 20% chance of making the postseason, you know, putting yourself in that CBT jail and going over and, and they're not going to get under, it seems like they're, you know, as Chris Smith, projected and other people have projected you know five six million over they didn't do enough at the deadline to move enough pieces you know releasing Jackie Bradley doesn't help at all they're still on the hook for that um and so the compensation for the free agents who could leave this winter goes from a second rounder to a fourth rounder there's a lot of different you know impacts and then obviously once you go under or once you go over once you you know, are in danger of going over twice. And we've seen how that's played out. And in a couple of years, it's a situation they're going to have to rectify. Is that one of the bigger storylines of this deadline to you that they weren't able to figure out that situation? Or is it just something where they, you know, kind of had their hands tied? Their hands were not tied. They could have gotten under. They made a choice that they would rather, uh, they, they would rather um, give that opportunity to compete. Uh, they would, they would rather, uh, to give full advantage, um, take full advantage of whatever opportunity they had to contend this year, uh, rather than getting under the threshold. That was uh, that was a that was a choice, mm-hmm. um, one that you know one that was 
that that that's that's part of the you know the level of surprise that existed um, among some parts of the organization regarding uh, what the Red Sox didn't didn't do. Um, it was very clear from people outside the organization that had they wanted to dump, they could have dumped and they would have been able to get under. No problem. Um, you know they have so much money coming off the books this winter uh, that you know they can go in any number of directions right. uh, that they want to. So. Um, so, I mean, you know, they've, they've achieved this, like, you know, financial flexibility, uh, with a relative dearth of long-term contracts, save for, uh, save for that of Chris Sale, Which um, we'll get to. And, uh, and Trevor Story that, uh, that they're, you know, they're in a position where, um, where if, if they get to a point of prioritizing it, it's not going to be the same, right. As at least as things stand now, it won't be the same, like upheaval in the organization that would, uh, that would go into getting under it. And I do think that the Red Sox, I, I think that it's safe to assume that they'll want to get under it at least once every three years, um, you know, because that's been their pattern in the past and that's how the penalty structures work. Um, there, there are implications. There are implications for what it means for draft pick compensation uh, and all that stuff. So it'll be, it will be interesting to see uh, how that plays out. But at the same time, you know, it's possible. What if they don't want to give a qualifying offer to J.D. Martinez? Right. What if they don't want to give a qualifying offer to Nate Evaldi? That one would be a little bit more surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, what if they really, really, really feel like they want to? They, they're going to push hard on re-signing Bogarts. Um, mm-hmm. So some of the, you know, some of the draft questions, draft pick compensation questions, um, you know, like we we don't know. I, I at least I don't know exactly what the team uh, what the team was thinking in terms of the potential consequence of getting under versus staying over, it may be relatively trivial. Yeah. It may not be, but it may right. be. Two more kind of not exactly trade deadline, trade, trade deadline tangential. Were you surprised by the Jackie Bradley move? I mean, I, I felt like if you're going to be paying him anyway, you know, and you're not getting any offense from Jaron Duran in the outfield, you might as well, you know, keep him on the roster. But especially with what he means as as a guy, what he's meant to the organization, I just thought, you know, kind of weird timing and, and kind of a weird move overall. Yeah, I I, I don't, I think maybe mildly surprised. Um, at the same time, I think that they had arrived at the point where, uh, where they had decided that he was clearly going to be a backup. So this is the point where it's a little bit of a strange dance to be in between present and future, right? And so the Red Sox kind of need to figure out what Jaron Duran is for them. And I figured it out. <laughs> um we I'm figured it sure. out on sunday in kansas city well you know like i i you you have to be willing to like in in 2014 it would have been possible to say that you had figured out what xander bogarts and what mookie Betts were for the future of the red sox organization and for that matter jackie bradley jr mm-hmm. and none of it looked good and, you know, that was in the middle of, of 2014, where we forget that Betts was demoted multiple times that year. Jackie Bradley was demoted at the end of the year. Xander Bogarts would have been demoted if they had had any internal options yeah. uh, to play shortstop. Um, but those through those struggles, you ultimately are sometimes uh, sometimes able to get like you. Those learning experiences matter. That's that's equity that you're investing uh, in your future. Um I'm thinking randomly of like uh, the SNL Kylo Ren skit where uh, where uh, he 
where he gives a card that says, uh, at the end of every storm comes a rainbow, and then writes a little <laughs> note inside saying, sorry, I killed your son. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, very tangential random thing. And there's there's been no, uh, there's been no, uh, no, no fratricide. For, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think that the Red Sox feel like it's important to figure out what Jaron Duran can be and not to react to one game mm -hmm. uh, in figuring that out. They're um, smarter than me. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, perhaps a little bit more patient and <laughs> perhaps, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and perhaps less obsessed with soft serve. That's a good point. That would be hard, hard not to. Um, uh, have and, you done the break? Have you visited with the Braves this series about about their soft serve obsession? No, that's a big thing, though, right? I mean, it was a huge thing for them in the in the playoffs last year. Yeah, that was. Right. Like, yeah, that was that was what changed everything, from what I understand. That was that was described as you described it, I believe, as the biggest Red Sox trade deadline acquisition that they had the soft serve machine. It was back in the dining area. No disrespect, to Eric Hosmer. But, Atlanta got one in the clubhouse at the trade deadline last year, so they thought that that was their biggest acquisition. With all due respect to Jock Peterson and Rosario, Rosario. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. It, last thing I want to ask you, uh, non ice cream related, uh, as we assess. I guess we're starting to assess as, as you were you know, talking about and, and writing about yesterday, the Chris sale deal. Um, is there any way that that contract, and you know, I always say when we, when that deal was signed, everybody was, wow, that's a super team friendly deal. That's a great deal for them. You know, look at this deal they got, like they didn't break the bank. Everybody would seem to be in that camp. And uh, is there any saving of that deal at this point, or is it already going to go down kind of in the realm of, one of the worst that the Red Sox have ever signed. Uh, I mean, I, sure, they're saving it, right? Like if Sales comes back and is healthy and performs as a top of the rotation pitcher for, let's say, like, you know, even if he did it for 20 to 25 starts over the remaining two years, like over each of the remaining two years of the contract, like then, you know, then you, you're, if you salvage a couple of years on a five year deal for yeah. a pitcher, you're actually doing pretty well. Um, but you know, I, I think that we also see what the likelihood is of his ability to remain healthy and durable. Um, and so it ain't trending in the right direction. And no. those contracts are always done with an eye towards like you anticipate that you're probably sucking water on the back end, but you know, but you're capitalizing on a really, really good talent at the front. And obviously haven't gotten a lot at the front. And as much as there was a sense that financially like you know this was a reasonable spot for sale to land there was still at the same time this kind of curiosity of huh he was he had a shoulder injury in right, august right. and september and you know wasn't you know that he wasn't himself in october and you did this deal without seeing him pitch mm -hmm. in you know barely with him barely pitching i think he'd thrown one outing in spring training and been in like at, sitting at like 86 87 so it was uh so in I mean, I think that there was there was a lot of disconcertment. Um, it was it was a pretty divisive signing, certainly inside of the organization. Yeah, and uh, that you know it it played a, an awfully large role in the fact that uh, that Dave Dombrowski is no longer president of baseball operations, and that Chaim Bloom is. Mm -hmm. And it's not very divisive now. I think everybody is in agreement on on how it's turned out so far. And you know, obviously, you know, at a certain point, you do. You know, sales I think great with us all the time so I do feel bad for him that this has all happened just in terms of you know he's not he's not trying to get hurt and obviously you know, Loves to compete, been, like you know yeah. like that is his passion um and he's he, I mean seeing like have people whose careers like when any in any career if anyone is passionate about their career and they lose the opportunity to pursue it 
um, for whatever reason, that's sad. Like, right. that's okay. You know, like if you, that would be very sad if, you know, if uh, you went through another season without uh, without the ice cream machine. Exactly. I think we'll end there. That's Alex Beer from the I Boston like the Globe. ice cream machine too. I, I also don't <laughs> want to put this just on you. No, it's, was, I mean, it's, very I, it's, it's a bit now. So I feel I like, like the you know, I have to own it. You know, I, they do yeah. a good job. The new, yeah. new and improved media cafeteria at Fenway Park. Gonna give it a shout out. There you go. Well, thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris.